You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Blood Groove. Torso and Pinches. Ironside, M.D., Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again the Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Christine, Cower, and Lydia, as well as our newest Commodore, Commodore Buggy. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Pirate Haven at Nassau, New Providence Island. We've discussed the contentions between Spain and England surrounding the settlement. We've also talked about the contentions between the respectable slave-owning planters on the island and the detestable sea-roving adventurers. All of that is going to continue to be relevant to our story, but there's one piece missing. A real, proper pirate captain. A true scallywag with a big ship and a crew full of 'er ne'er-do-wells. That's what makes Nassau, Nassau. And today we're going to rectify that lack. Today, Henry Every comes to Nassau. This is episode 236, Protection and Liberty. When we last left Henry Every and the crew of the Fancy, they had just purchased 90 slaves at the French Ile Réunion, the island of Reunion. It's worth noting that it was at this point that most of their non-English crewmen left. About 50 men, all of the French on board, as well as the Danes and some Englishmen, They bought a small ship, maybe a bark or a sloop, and they left the fancy. They sailed for Madagascar, probably for St. Augustine Bay. Those fifty pirates would add to the pool of available labor at Madagascar, which many pirates in the coming months would pull to flesh out their crews, or in the case of these fifty men with a bark or a sloop, they might just add to their fleet. 
But the 90 slaves, that's an interesting number. I can't figure out how many belonged to Henry Every personally, but there would have been just a little bit over 90 pirates left on the fancy at this point. It's not out of the realm of possibility that nearly every pirate on board had a slave of his own. It would have been a... You know, I'm not sure how to put this. You know how they say when they talk about investing that you should have a diversified portfolio. You don't want all your money in one single stock or even in one single industry in case the market turns against you. Well, this was the pirates diversifying their portfolio. You know, they had silks and spices and other expensive trade goods, and they had gems and precious stones, but mostly it was hard specie, silver and gold. But now most of them also owned another human being. A human being that, it should be noted, was mostly legally obtained. They may have been paid for with stolen money, yeah, and... Sure, they were purchased from the French who were at this moment at war with England, but they were paid for, and for pirates, that's pretty good. This was a little bit of insurance. As it happens, it's not going to matter too much, but just in case. And these slaves were a good investment for the pirates. There was their monetary value on the slave market, but beyond that, they could also do work. And, you know, they just lost 50 crewmen, so they needed more hands on board. These slaves worked the fancy. And this wasn't just menial labor, it wasn't toiling in the fields, this was... These men were learning a trade. You know, a sailing ship was a complicated machine. Those who knew how to operate them were in high demand, especially here at the height of the age of sail. There's a, an absolutely fantastic book... It's called No Limits to Their Sway by Edgardo Perez Morales, and it talks a lot about the role of slavery in the maritime world of the Caribbean. Now that book takes place a little bit later, during the Age of Revolutions, so the end of the 1700s and beginning of the 1800s. And it's the Caribbean in that time that Morales calls the masterless Caribbean. Because those seafaring slaves there at the end of the 18th century, they lived on the fringes of enslavement. They had a valuable skill set. They knew how to sail, and their masters often kind of rented them out. You know, if you had a slave who knew how to sail, you could rent his services to a crew that needed men who knew that job. And most of the time, this was a path toward freedom for the slaves. Obviously, they could just jump ship. They had a lot more opportunities to do that than on a plantation. And in any port city they might happen upon, there was certain to be a crew that would take any man, even a black man, even a man who did not have the papers verifying his free status, they would take them on board. Most of these crews were privateers, but of course that meant more money for this newly freed individual. But more often than that, actually, the masters worked out a kind of a profit-sharing agreement with the slave in question. You know, the master might get 70% of the wages while the slave got 30. You'd sometimes see 60-40 or even more rarely 50-50. But it was enough that after a few years doing the job, these sailors would be able to buy their own freedom. 
which was a big deal. Those papers verifying their status as a freedman were hard to come by and important to, you know, not return to a life of enslavement. It's a fascinating topic, and that book is really worth a read. If you'd like to learn more about it, then I'd suggest you keep your ears open. There's a certain dashing podcast host that may just have wrapped up work on an audiobook version of No Limits to Their Sway, Cartagena's Privateers and the Masterless Caribbean in the Age of Revolutions, coming soon. But still, those ninety enslaved men on board the Fancy, they were learning the trade of sailing. And they were among the first men of color to really take part in that culture. Now, I don't want to paint the pirates here as heroes for them. There was no high-minded ideal. No one said, one day these men might be able to buy their freedom from bondage thanks to the skills that we are teaching them. So really, you know, we're doing them a favor. No, they just bought slaves. Slaves that were expected to do the work of helping them to sail their vessel. But in doing so, they were learning more than just rigging. They were learning the culture of a ship. How sailors talked, how they moved, their sense of humor, their attitudes toward life. They were learning how to fit in on a maritime craft, especially a pirate ship. And in the years to come, some of those men would be sailing on board famous pirate ships. Following their stop at Reunion, Fancy rounded the Cape of Good Hope and made their way over to Ascension Island. There they stocked up on sea turtles a source of meat for their coming 6,000 nautical mile voyage to Nassau. But the destination was not yet set in stone, at least I don't think. A lot of the pirates on board the Fancy, in my opinion, wisely, thought that sailing to an English colony was a terrible idea. Philip Middleton, who was 17 when he signed up to sail with Fancy, and 20 at the time of his testimony, would say in that testimony, and when he says England here, he means English soil anywhere. He said, quote, They were afraid if they came to England and were caught, they would be hanged. Which, to be fair, in most cases they would be hanged. Everyone in the world was looking for these particular pirates, especially Englishmen. A significant portion of the crew wanted to set a heading for Cayenne, off the coast of South America. Cayenne was a French colony, an island at the mouth of the Cayenne River. Cayenne has a history similar to that of New Providence, in that it was a contested piece of property. In this case, it was between France and Portugal, but since about 1670, it had been consistently inhabited by the French. But it was kind of a only a semi-official colony, thanks to its contested nature, and the people who lived there were mostly exiles and runaways and criminals, the sort of less-than-savory types that make up most pirate havens. Cayenne was part of the privateering infrastructure of the French Empire. There was kind of a pipeline between Cayenne and Reunion for all sorts of men of desperate fortunes. Our source for this bone of contention between the crew, should they sail to Nassau or Cayenne, comes from John Dan, the coxswain on the fancy. A coxswain, for those of you wondering, is the chief petty officer on board most ships, usually the boatswain's mate. 
that is, among the regular crewmen, not the officers, but just the crew, the coxswain is the second highest-ranking member. In Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, Israel Hands, who was Blackbeard's real-life quartermaster, but Hands is the coxswain of the Hispaniola. In this case, it made John Dan probably the fifth or sixth highest-ranking member on the crew, fifth or sixth in line for the captaincy. After Every, the captain, and the quartermaster, or potentially quartermasters, and then the pilot and then the boatswain, comes the coxswain. In a very few short months, seven men are going to get picked up in the British Isles as accomplices to Henry Every's piracy. They're not all going to get picked up at once, but they will all be brought to London at around the same time. Six of those men are going to stand trial. John Dan, on the other hand, is going to turn state's witness. He's going to give a full confession before the court and get a full pardon. It's good for us as he's our best source on some of this stuff. But after he received his full pardon... John Dan would go on to marry, and then he would open a bank with his brother-in-law, a brother-in-law who just happened to be a goldsmith. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. And you know, I'm forced to wonder here, how did John Dan get the gold to open a bank? I mean, it's handy, wouldn't you say, that he married a woman whose brother happens to have the tools and the skill to melt gold, to smelt it into untraceable bullion for their new bank. And I'm also forced to wonder if John Dan may have known the location of some of his crewmates' treasure. Men that he sold down the river that he turned on when he turned state's witness. Men whose gold he may have been able to go collect. In any case, John Dan's testimony on this affair reads as follows. Quote, Captain Every resolved to go straight for the island of Providence. In the way, the men mutinied, some being for carrying her to Cayenne, belonging to the French near Brazil, but Captain Every withstood it there being not above twenty men in the ship that joined with him. End quote. And that's basically all we know about this mutiny. That it happened, because some of the men wanted to go to Cayenne, and that Henry Every withstood it with twenty men. Now, 
It's a bit confused on the timeline here, or maybe I'm a bit confused on the timeline. I'm not sure if this was to have taken place before or after their stop at Reunion Island. The coxswain, John Dan, mentions their stop at the island of Mascarene, by which he means Reunion. Remember, it wasn't named Reunion till after the French Revolution. And E.T. Fox tells us that the mutiny was that moment when those fifty or so crewmen left the crew. A few others, though, including Stephen Johnson, seem to suggest that the mutiny was a later event. That happened sometime after they entered the Atlantic Ocean. In any case, one way or another, Henry Every kept his captaincy and continued on his way to Providence Island. Again, John Dan. He tells us, quote, About March or April last, it was March 1696, they arrived at the island of Providence with 113 men on board. End quote. And again, the record seems a bit confused. I have seen it suggested that those 113 men included those 90 slaves, but I don't think that's accurate. First of all, I just don't see how 20 men could keep 90 others enslaved on the tight confines of a sailing ship. You know, they weren't in chains. They had to work the rigging and keep fancy running. I suspect if they outnumbered the white crewmen so much they might just have begun to think, you know, hey guys, their guns can only fire one bullet each. And yeah, they've got swords, but this is a ship. There's axes and, and pieces of wood and other swords all around. Why don't we just, you know, rush them? Now, the obvious answer here is that these men were still learning the craft of sailing a ship. None of them knew how to pilot a ship or even where they were going, and they were in the middle of a giant ocean, so killing all of the men who knew how to do that might have been a bad idea. But there are other signs that there are 113 European pilots in addition to the 90 slaves on board. Mostly, and this is the big one, it's the money. We'll get to that in a second. When the Fancy arrived in the Bahamas after a long voyage across the Atlantic, she did not immediately pull up at New Providence Harbor. Instead, as John Dan tells us, they first came to anchor off the island of Thera, by which he of course means Eleuthera, an island that we should all be familiar with after I made you sit through several episodes about the colonial history of the Bahamas. It was there at Eleuthera that Henry Avery sat down to pen a letter to Governor Nicholas Trott, of the Bahamas. Now those of you who have read A General History of the Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson, you might be familiar with a Nicholas Trot. In A General History, he's the magistrate that oversaw the trial of an infamous and dastardly pirate named Steed Bonnet. But that's a different Nicholas Trot. That's Nicholas Trot the Younger. This governor, here in 1696, is his uncle, Nicholas Trott the Elder. Sir, Nicholas Trott, to his friends, he'd been sent by the Lord's proprietor and tasked with bringing order to and delivering profit from New Providence Island. But the big question here, the one that keeps me up at nights, is why did Henry Every think to sail for the Bahamas? Why did he 
endure a mutiny to sail for New Providence in the Bahamas. And why did he write his letter to Nicholas Trott? Now that's not a question that anyone can really answer, but it has raised a ton of speculation over the years. There's one theory, that after his naval career, but before he sailed on board the Charles II, Henry Every, alias Benjamin Bridgman, a notorious interloper and slave trader, sold his ill-gotten human cargo at New Providence Island. Now that's by no means impossible. It would mean Henry Every knew about New Providence Island, and it's less than law-abiding nature. It would mean that he knew Governor Trott, and that the governor was willing to occasionally bend the rules here and there if there was a profit to be made. And that's not a terrible notion. If we're speculating, I actually kind of like that idea, but it's not an idea that, as far as I've seen, we have any real solid evidence of. We have something like two sentences of reputable reporting about Benjamin Bridgman, the interloper, and neither mentions New Providence Island. It's equally possible that Henry Every, or some of his men, had heard about New Providence from one of the other pirates on their cruise to the Indian Ocean. Thomas Wake and Joseph Farrow both paid visits to New Providence in their earlier careers. Or maybe it's some nameless pirate, uh, someone forgotten by history that told them about this paradise. A place that's got rum and women and the water is clear and the weather is warm and the fruit is scrumptious. The kind of place where you can sell anything, and I mean anything, as long as you make sure the governor gets his cut. There are those that I've seen suggest that since Henry Every addressed his letter to Governor Nicholas Trott, he must have had some kind of intimate knowledge of the island. But that's... I mean, he was on Eleuthera, just a few miles away. He could just ask somebody who the governor was, the governor of Eleuthera. You know, Nicholas Trott, I don't like him. More suggestive to me of the possibility that Henry Every had some kind of knowledge of the governor is that he signed his letter to Nicholas Trott as Benjamin Bridgman. That's a name that he used so notoriously when he was illegally trading in slaves. A name that, if Governor Trott had been involved in the purchase of illegal slaves back in 1693, I'm sure he would remember. And again, we may never know the truth of any of this. What we do know is that Henry Every excuse me, Benjamin Bridgman, offered the governor this deal. He offered to raise 20 pieces of eight from every crewman on board his ship, as well as 70 pieces of eight from his own purse. In addition, they would toss in a bunch of valuable trade goods. We can assume silks and spices and dyes and the likes, but John Dan makes special mention of elephant teeth. But in total... They offered to give him about 1,000 pounds sterling in hard specie and trade goods. That was going to be a donation of goodwill given directly to Governor Nicholas Trott, a donation that he could use for the upkeep and defense of Nassau were he so inclined, or 
any other needs he might have. As it turned out, he would use it for the defense and upkeep of Nassau, but that was his prerogative. But Benjamin Bridgman was candid with the governor about his story. He told the governor they were interlopers, illegal slave traders, but not to worry, all of their slaves had been taken from French slavers. You could see the marks with which they had been branded by their French masters, clearly, not stolen English property. All of this was done for the good of Mother England, plus the ship had, quote, done nothing for which they would not answer, end quote. Admitting their criminal background, but criminality done with the good of the empire in mind, the kind of thing that a good upstanding governor like Nicholas Trott could overlook. Which, all of this, were taking on the word of Nicholas Trott himself. Sadly, the letter that Every wrote to the governor has not survived. This all comes from his later account. Trott also goes on to tell us that the ship was short of provisions. The letter from Bridgman said, quote, If they might be assured of protection and liberty to go away, end quote, that they would make that sizable donation to the colony. They would come in, they would trade their goods, and, this is key, they would give their frigate to Nassau. And then some might stay there at Nassau, and some might go, but either way they would not be a bother. In fact, all of these pie, I mean interlopers, might be a real boon to the colony. They were all well-armed, you see. One has to be in a trade such as theirs. Slave trading, I mean, you know, those notorious savages. Dangerous folk. Which means that all of these interlopers knew how to use their weapons quite well. Now, if I may be so bold, I would suggest that Nicholas Trott knew that all of this was a lie. He had to have known, or at least highly suspect that this was the fancy, that this was the notorious pirate ship of the infamous king of pirates himself, Henry Every. Every single Englishman in the world had their eyes open for that ship and that man. There's no way he could have missed it, unless he was a complete fool, which he wasn't. So the governor knew this was Henry Every, but Henry Every knew that the governor knew it was Henry Every. So Henry Every made an offer that Governor Trott could not refuse. Goods and coin worth a thousand pounds is a very good start here, but the real meat of the offer was the ship and all of those well-armed men. That was both a carrot and a potential stick. See, England and France were, as we know, at war, but the French had been sniffing around the Bahamas for some time now. A few raggedy sailors in sloops armed with old muskets, well, that's just not enough to deter the French for very long. But what about a frigate with 46 big guns? And dozens of well-armed mariners who knew how to fight. Those were resources that Nassau desperately needed, essential for their defense even. They didn't have many men who could fight and their guns were in poor condition. That is a fine-looking carrot. The stick, on the other hand, 
was a frigate with 46 big guns and dozens of well-armed mariners who knew how to fight. Were they so inclined, they could take Nassau in an afternoon. They wouldn't even break a sweat. They might not lose a man. And their captain, Every, I mean, Long Ben, he did not explicitly say as much, at least according to Nicholas Trot. but the implication was clear. They could come ashore with or without permission, so why not take the thousand pounds? Nicholas Trot took the money. Of course it wasn't that cut and dried. He called a meeting of the Council of Nassau, and they deliberated over all of this for some time. What I wouldn't give for a copy of that meeting's minutes, or a copy of the letter from Every to the governor, or of the governor's reply, we don't have any of that, unfortunately. We do have a later letter from the governor at Jamaica telling Governor Trot that this was Henry Every of the fancy. Did you not realize that? And Governor Trot said, quote, there is no proof. In the end, the Council of Nassau and Governor Trot agreed to Benjamin Bridgman's terms. When word reached the fancy over at Eleuthera, a boat that carried Henry Adams, the quartermaster of the ship, as well as Robert Clinton and Thomas Hollingsworth, and an unnamed slave who I presume had to carry the chest full of gold, well, they arrived a few days later to deliver the money to Governor Trot. They had a brief sit-down to ensure the governor that their intentions were indeed peaceful, and they also had the opportunity to look around a little bit. When they got back to Eleuthera, they carried all of the governor's promises of a safe passage, but they also reported on the state of things. They had a pitiful fort, with almost no guns, probably none of them in working condition, and the walls were literally falling over. That was the ruin of the former Fort Charles. And it wasn't like there was anybody to rebuild it. They had almost no militia to speak of. There were no imperial officials, no policemen making the rounds. Nassau was perfect. A quiet little backwater that had everything their hearts could ever desire and nothing to offer them any trouble whatsoever. The following day, Henry Every set sail for his very last voyage in the ship Fancy. It was a short hop from Eleuthera to New Providence, but when he anchored in the harbor, put in at the dock, and left his ship, it was for the last time. Henry Every would never return to the pirate ship Fancy. Next time, we're going to discuss what really happened there in Nassau and we're going to discuss what the rest of the world thought was the real fate of the King of Pirates. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
born, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.